0: My name, for those who may not know me, is Brian Pfeiffer. Uh, I've been a part of Lakeview for the last decade or so plus. Uh, elder here for the last eight years. Um, from time to time, when Brian goes away, he comes to the Elder Board, and he lets us know he's going to be gone and ask us if one of us wants to speak. I haven't spoken in a while, so it was kind of my time to take my turn, so here I am. I usually volunteer Felix. Another elder on the board. I usually throw him up right away, but I already volunteered him for March, so I I didn't have that out this time. Uh, Public speaking is not really what I would list amongst my strengths. Uh, Usually, when I got up here, my talks have some sort of pictures or video or like fun stuff so that I don't have to be, I can run to the side Um, and break the ice or set the tone. But uh, today, you've got me uh, unplugged. When we go to prep, usually, there's a specific verse or topic uh, that we kind of have as a starting point to go on. Uh, This time, when I told Brian I'd I'd do it, he said, okay, anything you want. (laughs) And I can tell you now that there is nothing more terrifying, at least for me, than being told to speak to the church about anything you want. Uh, But at the same time, you know, I appreciated the trust, and uh, I guess we'll see if you do too. So, as I started to think about what that anything I would use kind of as a basis for a sermon, um, I'm an engineer, that's kind of my background, Uh, I work with numbers, data analysis, and I've had something tugging at me for a while now, and uh, after praying on it, I want to speak to you on the subject of demography and demographics. Now, pause for that less than dramatic effect of that topic. (laughs) Um, demography is a statistical study of human populations. We see it every day, uh, we'll hear it on phone surveys. There's obnoxious guys they call us all the time. We participate in censuses every four years. They take demographic information for loans, credit cards, product registration, it gets extracted from your online purchases and activity. It's everywhere. It's considered extremely valuable, it's bought and sold to myriad of groups. The main demographics are age, race, ethnicity, uh, religion, employment, uh, political affiliation. But over the past several years, we've seen a myriad of degrees of affiliations and stances and positions that have been added over the past decade. And companies use this information, and they analyze it. Um, I think the typical demographic analyst now makes 73000 a year, and the upper end is six figures. Uh, so it's a very big industry, and companies use it to get our money. And politicians use it to get our votes. And the number of boxes we can now put people in has become like a checkerboard of groups. And if we're honest with ourselves, we look at these groups out there and we make judgments about them. Uh, Judging people in groups is a natural survival instinct. Um, We innately want to surround ourselves with people that uh, we can trust. And the vast majority of time, this means like-minded people. We think that means we'll be safe. A Harvard psychologist, Amy Cuddy, says that we ask ourselves two things when we make a judgment about people. Can I trust them? And should I respect them? So wherever your group-defining demographic is, whether you're anti-mask, anti-vax, conservative, liberal, progressive, MAGA, defund the police, support blue, Black Lives Matter, boomers, snowflakes, the list today goes on and on and on you have a position. And it's created an atmosphere of multiple opposing groups, dividing us as a, as a country, as a people, as a church sometimes. In this day and age, the answer to Dr. Cuddy's questions on trust and respect, in light of some of these groups, can raise some pretty extreme feelings. It probably hit a chord with one of the litany of aforementioned groups with them, some of the people in this room. And in those feelings, we answer Dr. Cuddy's question on trust and respect, and it can impact the way we might interact with or communicate with people with whom we have differing worldviews. You know communicate is many forms as well today. It just doesn't encompass uh, talking and the occasional letter writing. Yeah, I, I wrote letters every now and again. I'm old. Um, but email, the group text, the Facebook post, the messenger note to everybody on your. Thing. Comments on online articles or comments on posts. You see and know pretty, pretty well what people's stances are on things and how they believe the other side is. So I thought we might take a look at some biblical examples and guidance on dealing with the people that aren't in our demographic box that we've maybe made a judgment on and see if there are any takeaways that we can have or can apply in our lives. See, it wasn't that different in Jesus' day. There were groups who were on different sides of the social-political system and were definitely seen as maybe not valued, liked, or respected. The Samaritans were one such group. They were made up of Jewish and Gentile lineage. As after the Assyrians conquered the northern section of Israel and destroyed Jerusalem, Assyria imported outside tribes to merge with the local population. The Israelites, who didn't get taken into captivity and taken away, intermarried with them, And over time, they actually built a temple to worship God on Mount Gerizim in Samaria and believed it to be where Moses intended for Israel to worship him, not in Jerusalem, where everybody else believed the temple should be. What's more, uh, later on, after they came out of captivity and uh, Nehemiah and the Israelites returned to rebuild Jerusalem, the Samaritans openly opposed them. So the Samaritans to the Israelites were generally not liked maybe with a special amount of disdain. Uh, they were unpure and sacrilegious. They were, they were hated. So much that Israel's, Israelites that could, they would travel around Samaria on their way from, uh, to Jerusalem from uh, uh, Judea, which, you know, instead of through it, which was much quicker. So to put that into perspective, let's say from here we want to go to Yellowstone National Park. From here in Carmel, New York, it's like a 33-hour ma- uh, straight drive. Um, but let's say you had an issue with people in the Midwest. Right? You didn't like them, um, thought they mistreated Ren from Footloose, angry that the Colts moved to Indianapolis from Baltimore. You just, you, you know, you didn't like Field of Dreams, thought it was a wacky movie. I don't know. But you want to avoid that whole region. So you shoot down south to Jacksonville, Florida... Head west to San Antonio, Texas, further west to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then up to Yellowstone. A 58-hour drive. It adds about three days. And that's what they would do. That's how much they disliked the Samaritans. They were willing to add that much time and take that much inconvenience to avoid that region. But we look at Jesus, and, and he didn't take the long way around. He handled this quite differently, as we see in the book of John, chapter 4, and that should come up. All right. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' And are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Jesus doesn't worry about the right box. And he heads straight into Samaria. And coming to a town, he strikes up a conversation with a woman at a well and asks her for a drink. And there are several positions that put her in a specific box. First, a Samaritan. Obviously, we talked about where where that puts her. Second, she's a woman who, in those days, in that society, were considered second-class citizens. And thirdly, a midday well meeting, which indicated she didn't want to be at the well when anybody else was there. She didn't want to be there at the same time others were from the town, They would customarily go out in the morning and not be out in the hot sun. We find out she's been married multiple times and was living with a man who was not her husband. She comes at midday to avoid the shame and judgment of the town. She's completely opposite the box of Jesus. But Jesus sits. He engages her. He asks her for a drink. It catches her off guard because in those days, Jewish teachers did not speak publicly to women. And secondly, Israelites risk ritual contamination from interactions with Samaritans. By doing this, he shows her she is valued. He does point out her situation in the conversation, but doesn't condemn or judge her. He dialogues with her as an equal and shares his truth with her. And she responds. She puts off the shame and fear that had her go to the well in the heavy heat of midday to avoid everyone. And she goes to the town people she was avoiding to tell them of him. And because of her testimony, the town comes to believe in him. We again see Jesus challenge the perception of the right boxes when he's asked about the definition of our neighbor by a Jewish lawyer in Luke 29, 27 through 37. pops up next. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? in the law replied the one who had mercy on him Jesus told him go and do likewise Jesus in order to answer the question of who is our neighbor presents a parable many Jewish teachers of the day taught the concept of my neighbor to mean fellow Israelite but Jesus presents the story of a good Samaritan where we see a priest and a Levite two in-the-right-box people leave a beaten man on the side of the road and actually pass to the other side. Jesus makes the bad guy to Israel, the Samaritan, the hero of the story. He didn't leave a beaten Jewish man to die on the side of the road for fear of becoming unclean. It says he took pity on him. Pity in this day and age has connotation, but if you look up the definition, pity is the feeling of sorrow and compassion caused by the suffering and misfortunes of others. The Samaritan felt compassion, even though this half-dead man on the ground likely despised him. Maybe he wouldn't do the same thing. And he took care of him as a neighbor and bound up his wounds and went out of his way to care for him. We also see Jesus break the, the paradigm in who he surrounds himself with, his disciples not just blue-collar fishermen, but specifically he calls a tax collect- collector Matthew. And you can read his own calling in Matthew 9 to uh, 12. Not going to pop it up here today. But a tax collector in those days were seen as a traitor, a turncoat, and a cheat. They were wealthy who worked for the occupying enemy, the Romans, and got wealthy at their fellow Israelites' expense by overtaxing them and then keeping the extra for themselves. Jesus, in this passage, not only calls him to be his disciple, but he goes to his house and dines with him and his friends. This leads to a call-out by the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders of the day, and asking, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? These guys are not in the right box. And this prompted Jesus' reply in, in verse 12 of that passage with, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The last example we have is from Paul, a devout Jew. He was a vocal, action-based terrorist to the Christian, to early Christian church, who Jesus called and made his witness to the Gentiles, who was militant and rigid. But when we see him in 1 Corinthians 9, his heart has changed. He said so much that he says... To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. Paul sees it's important to set aside these things that divide us. And to be respectful of the culture or boxes we insert ourselves in. Not that we have to marginalize ourselves with the respect to how Christ calls us to live. But to be in and with those we find ourselves around and be respectful of them and their culture. He didn't say, I challenged the Jews, for we're not under the law anymore, and I challenged the Gentiles, for they need Christ, or I taught the weak to get strong, because they need not be weak. Paul did not have to prove to them they were wrong, and he didn't have to antagonize them to get them there. His heart was bent to the people he was engaged with. He conformed, and in so doing, showed love and respect for those he was around. And there are common threads that run through all these these scriptures and I think they're important for us to understand if we want to lift them out and if we want to care for and reach others in our community and beyond the first is meet people where they are we don't see Jesus call a woman away from the well to talk to her outside of open daylight in front of all the people we don't see Jesus to you know I don't want to go to your house let's go to Applebee's or somewhere I don't like the crowd you're running with you know Uh, And we don't see Paul evangelizing people before he knows them. They're all met where they are. They're all engaged on their own turf. The second is care and respect people. Jesus engages the Samaritan woman and does so as an equal. Jesus reclines with sinners and tax collectors to engage and talk with them as a known teacher. And the same goes for Paul as he adjusts how he lives to respect the culture and environment he's in. I had the opportunity to go to Kenya twice, on mission trip with my wife, and with one or two of you out there. It was an outreach to street children, uh, children who, for various reasons, found themselves out on the street fending for themselves. Uh, the organization we were with had a school and a children's home associated with it. And while it would be easy to talk about the kids and relationships the impacts that happened there. But that's a a good story for another day. This is a little bit... I want to talk about the teachers at the school. Uh, They weren't on my radar when we went, but God had a different experience in mind. I remember when we went that first time, some of us were told we were going to be helping out the teachers at the school. And we were accepted with less than enthusiasm from them, See, they thought we were going to come in, take over, that we were going to do things our way, that we were parachuting in to fix things, play games, give candy, do crafts, but we didn't do that. When our group asked what they needed and served them by tutoring some of the children after hours and helped them by teaching their curriculum and lesson plans while they graded papers so they could catch up, we threw them a teacher appreciation tea Kenya is a former British colony, so tea is like really big there. Um, When they saw we were considering them as the experts and just trying to partner and walk a week or two with them, that we cared about them. Walls went down. Lines of communication opened up. Opportunities to discuss additional ways to help happened. We had relationships with them. And it allowed us to witness to them through the love of Christ. The teachers expected us to disrupt and upset their teaching in classes. They didn't think we were there for them. Uh, they didn't think they were in the right box for caring. They were a side box, and we were there just for the kids. Once they saw that we cared about them and respected them, the relationship totally changed. There's a saying, if People do not care what you know until they know that you care. No one will take anything, even the truth, if it's been given in anger, sarcasm, or disrespect. Unfortunately, sarcasm is not the sixth love language. I've had to come to terms with that. I surprised as well to learn that. A um, little bit of damage, but I'm good. But we put these same values into practice here at Lakeview. And I want to just remind ourselves of that. Many of you know that we had a special Christmas offering. Uh, And one of the directions the offering was going was in support for uh, housing for a missionary to get a home in a Hindu community in New Jersey. We've partnered with this individual, uh, ongoing for a while now, and it reflects the way that Paul was in 1 Corinthians. This person goes in and conforms to the culture. She doesn't stand out except for that she lives a Christian life in a Hindu culture. And by doing so, Stands out enough on her own to get opportunities to share the good news with those in that community. We also sponsor, we're also the sponsoring church for the Northeast chapter of the priesthood motorcycle ministry. Uh, these guys and gals likewise go out into the motorcycle community to rallies, to other places. And likewise, by being just slightly different, respecting the culture, but being Christian in that culture get opportunity to share the good news about Jesus. And like Jesus and Paul, both of these ministries have people whose hearts are bent to those in the boxes. And that's important. And just like Paul sees them not as people in boxes, but as people Jesus wants. Because at the end of the day, we can put people in as many boxes as we want and make as many judgments about those boxes as we want. But there's only... Two key demographic groupings that we need to be concerned about. First grouping has two sets of boxes one in one box, and everybody else in the other. And this is the number of people that have lived a life worthy of having a relationship with God. And that one's Jesus. It's not me, and it's not you. None of us, on our own merits, are worthy of living a life with, with God. We should be apart from him. And because that one chose to go to the cross, he paid the price for everyone in that other box. Everyone, across every political, demographic you can create. They're all in there, all of them. He died for the sins of the world. Which brings us to the second grouping set, which is the response to Jesus' free gift of salvation. And it has two boxes again. One for those of us that have accepted his free gift of payment for the cross and are his to have a relationship with him. And one box for those who have not. And this is where we from his box are called to do what we just talked about. To let those people in the other box know that they're seen, heard, valued, And loved first by us, but also by a God who has a purpose for them and wants a relationship with them. God wants everyone in that box, and he wants us to be part of bringing them over. And so I challenge all of us as we leave here and go back into the world of a million demographics with a million judgments, and as we interact with that group of people or that person, can we apply these lessons, show compassion, meet them where they are, and genuinely show them care and respect, and allow God to bend your hearts to them? I hope so. Let us pray.